Thank you, Ben. So please turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. Advent truly is a season of expectation. And we've been expecting and anticipating the celebration of the birth of Christ for over a month. Uh, and it kind of made me, as, as I was thinking about the drive through nativity, and I didn't get a chance to really do much with drive through this year because I had to go to Atlanta and then I had to go to New Orleans. But I thought about drive through nativity. One of my favorite things to do with the drive through nativity is work the hot chocolate line. And because people love you if you give them hot chocolate, you know, so, so if you want to be liked, give people hot chocolate and you get to visit with people and see where people are from and all of that. But I always marvel when I look down there at that parking lot and I think about all those people waiting for that drive through nativity, waiting expectantly. You know, some of them wait for over an hour just to drive through and see and hear the story of the birth of Christ. Expectation. The people of Israel waited a lot more than an hour, though, for the birth of Jesus. In fact, they waited for 400 years in complete silence. God wasn't moving. God wasn't speaking. It almost seemed as if God had forgotten them, that as if God had grown distant. But then suddenly, out of nowhere, prophecies began to be fulfilled. Hope began to rise. It's as if heaven had held its breath for centuries and finally just, just let out a sigh and filled up the sky with the heavenly host. And those angels began to sing a heavenly song. And, and what did they sing? What did those angels choose? What words to break that 400 years of silence? Well, we see in Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 8. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom His favor rests. This is what Israel had been waiting and hoping and longing for, for their Messiah to come. And the angels right here in this passage, were the very first ones to give Jesus that title, the title of Messiah or Christ, which means anointed one. And who did these angels first reveal that title to? To shepherds. Mary and Joseph would later hear this said of Jesus by Simeon when they take him to the temple. He would call him the Christ, the Messiah. In Luke 2.26, it says that it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. What is the Messiah? What is the Christ? What does it mean to be the anointed one? Well, in the Old Testament, there were three offices to which a man could be anointed. Prophet, priest, or king. And when someone was anointed to one of those offices, a prophet, priest, or king, then they were set aside for that purpose. The anointed person was no longer a free agent. As a prophet, priest, or king, he spoke, served, or 
ruled in the name of the Lord God. He was representing not his will, but God's will. Not his words, but God's word. Not his authority, but God's authority. And Jesus was this long-awaited Messiah. The, the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament law and prophecy. Because Jesus was the prophet. He came as the priest and the king. He would speak the very word of God to the nations. He would be the ultimate mediator between God and man. He was the one promised to bring God's kingdom rule and reign into the world. God never does anything by accident, does He? I think it was very intentional that God chose to first reveal the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, His ultimate prophet, priest, and king, not to prophets. He didn't reveal it to priests. He didn't reveal it to kings. No, instead, the angels ended heaven's 400-year-long interlude with the pronouncement to common, hard-working, everyday people. They revealed it to shepherds. And they gave these shepherds a unique sign. Because this Messiah wouldn't be found in a synagogue or a temple or on a throne. He would be wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in a manger. You know, I like to imagine those shepherds gathered around that manger, you know, looking in, you know, kind of like we do at a baby with our itchy gitchy goos, you know, and our, just kind of looking at it and just, oh, look at it, isn't he cute? Look how small, look how tiny. Can't you just imagine them ooing and cooing? I don't know, maybe not. They're shepherds, right? They're kind of rough guys. But who knows? But what I do wonder is, as those shepherds look down into that manger, what did they see? When they beheld the face of that tiny child, and they looked at those little fingers and those little toes, what did the shepherds see? What child is this? What kind of Messiah would be found in a manger? Well, I think the shepherds saw a sacrificial lamb when they looked into that manger. Now, I spoke about this last week, but I wanted to touch on it again today. And I know with traveling and holidays, a lot of you weren't here last Sunday. And some of the ones who were here last Sunday aren't here today. I understand that. So I wanted to, to touch on this again. So if you're here last week, you just get a double dose of it. Maybe it'll stick in your mind a little bit better that way. How would these shepherds know when they found this amazing baby? What was the sign that the angels gave to them? Well, we see it in verse 12. The sign the angels gave is that this baby will be wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. That was the sign. Swaddled in strips of cloth and lying in a feeding trough for animals. Now that's a curious sign to give somebody to know that they have found this particular child. But, and, and the shepherds were curious. The shepherds were amazed. The shepherds obviously felt compelled to go. We didn't read this, but down in verse 15 it says, When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem. And see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. How is this such a special sign? Well, the significance of the sign is this. These were Levitical shepherds. These were shepherds in Bethlehem tending sheep. Now, Bethlehem can have two meanings. In the Hebrew, Bethlehem means house of bread. And the reason it's called that is on the east side of Bethlehem, in those gently rolling hills, are the, the wheat and barley fields. 
You may remember the story of, of Ruth and Boaz. Remember, Ruth was gleaning in Boaz's fields in Bethlehem. That's in those fields to the east of Bethlehem. So they'd raise grain, and that's why it was called the house of bread. But in Aramaic, Bethlehem means house of meat. And on the northwest side of Bethlehem, closer to Jerusalem, were the shepherd's fields. They were rockier, they weren't as good for growing grain, but they were perfect for grazing sheep. And that's where these shepherds would have been watching their sheep that night. Now the reason that they were, grow, they were, they were raising all of these sheep there on the northwest side of, Jerusalem, of Bethlehem is because it was close to Jerusalem. And what's in Jerusalem that needs lots of lambs? The temple. So these Levitical shepherds raising these sacrificial lambs was a booming industry because the Torah commanded two lambs to be sacrificed every day for what was called the continual offering. It was to, it was to give a continual aroma to God, to represent the prayers of the people coming up to God. And that's described in Numbers 28, if you want to read more about that. So every morning... And every evening, a one-year-old spotless lamb was sacrificed and burned. That's 730 lambs a year. That's a lot of lambs, isn't it? In Exodus 12, every family is also commanded to sacrifice one lamb at Passover. So that's thousands more lambs needing to be sacrificed at the same time every year. And then there were lambs that were sacrificed for other rituals. These sacrificial lambs, they needed a lot of them. And they were special lambs. They had to be spotless, without blemish, without injury. And so in order to keep these lambs spotless, the shepherds, when they were first born, because you can imagine with all these sheep and all these, these lambs running around that, that they could get trampled, they could get crushed up against the side of a stable. So when a new lamb was born, the shepherds would take it They would wrap it in cloth to keep its legs tight and they would set it up out of harm's way in a feeding trough. So in one way, a newborn wrapped in cloth lying in a manger was a common everyday sight for these shepherds. But what was uncommon, what was unthinkable, scandalous to these shepherds was that this newborn wrapped in cloth lying in a manger wasn't a lamb. It's a human being, a baby. And these shepherds recognized the shocking symbolism that this baby himself was a sacrificial lamb. As author Leonard Sweet, said, Leonard Sweet says, the most important sacrificial lamb who had ever been born, the lamb who had come to shut down the slaughterhouse of sacrifice, the perfect lamb of God. The Hebrew writer explains how Jesus Christ is the once and for all final sacrifice, the better sacrifice for the sins of mankind. No more lambs need to be slaughtered to atone for the sins of man. After all, our sins are more numerous than all the lambs we could ever slay. Amen? Hebrews 9.12 says, He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but He entered the most holy place once And for all, by His own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. See, under the Old Testament sacrificial system, every worshiper had to bring his own lamb that they raised themselves. Or they had to go buy their own lamb. But you know what you could not do? You couldn't borrow a lamb. 
You know what you couldn't give somebody for Christmas? A lamb for sacrifice. You couldn't give someone a lamb. You couldn't steal a lamb. No, it had to be your lamb. It had to cost you something. You had to provide your own sacrifice. But suddenly, Jesus is born. We come to the New Testament and everything is turned on its head because here, God provides the lamb. It's not provided by the worshiper, but by the one being worshipped. It's not provided by the offender, but by the one being offended. It's not provided by the sinner, but by the Savior. Jesus said of Himself in John chapter 10, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down His life for the sheep. Jesus did for us what no one else could do, what we could never do for ourselves because He alone is the perfect, spotless Lamb of God. Amen? 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19 says, For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors. No, but with the precious blood of Christ, a Lamb without blemish or defect. Jesus is both the spotless sacrificial lamb, and the good shepherd. And he came to willingly die in our place that we might have abundant and eternal life as the sons and daughters of God. When the shepherds looked in that manger, they saw the sacrificial lamb. But you know, I wonder what Mary and Joseph saw when they looked at that manger. You know, when parents look down at their newborn They're trying to find out, you know, do they have my eyes or your nose or my parents' mouth or, you know, who do they look like? And I can just imagine Mary and Joseph certainly did that. But I think, too, that as they looked at that baby, what they saw was Emmanuel, the God who is with us. In Isaiah 7, we heard in our Old Testament reading this morning, the Assyrians had besieged Jerusalem. The Assyrians were were, were bad dudes and... They were taking over the world and they had come now to Israel and they were at Jerusalem's doorstep and King Ahaz was tempted to seek aid from Egypt, from foreign powers. And Isaiah came to confront him about that and to encourage him and say, look, don't go turning to foreign powers. Trust in the Lord. God will take care of you. And then he challenged Ahaz to ask God for a sign to prove that Isaiah was telling him the truth and Ahaz refused. And he sounded so righteous when he said it, right? I mean, I'm not going to test the Lord. That sounds like a good thing. But God wanted to give Ahaz this sign. And so Isaiah responded in 714, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. So, a sign given to an apostate king was really meant for all God's people. And found its ultimate fulfillment centuries later in Bethlehem. As we heard in our New Testament reading, Matthew 1 goes on to explain this. As Gabriel spoke to Joseph and said, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Emmanuel. That's a powerful name. Because it reminds us That while our sins have kept us from coming to God, they could not keep God from coming to us. In Jesus, God stepped down. He emptied Himself of all of His rights as God. He humbled Himself and took on the form of a servant so that He 
to tabernacle among us. In John chapter 1, verse 14, it says, The Word, meaning Jesus, the Word, the Son of God became flesh and made His dwelling. The Greek word for made His dwelling is the same as the Hebrew word tabernacle. He tabernacled among us. And isn't that the story of the Bible? The story of the Bible is ultimately the story about a God who has a persistent desire to dwell in the midst of His people. In Genesis 28, He says, I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. There we see God's desire to be with His people, with Abraham and his descendants. And in Psalm 139, the psalmist David writes, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there, your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. Isaiah 43, 2 beautifully conveys one of those promises from God, Ben. He says, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. David echoes this in Psalm 23 when he says that even when he walks through those dark valleys, the valley of the shadow of death even, he says, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And Jesus himself promised us in the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 20, that he will be with us even to the end of the age. And all of this grand story concludes with this pronouncement at the end in Revelation 21.3. Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and He will dwell with them. They will be His people and God Himself will be with them and will be their God. Emmanuel, the God who is with us, who has always wanted to be with us, who will forever be with us, who are in Christ Jesus. Yet how quick are we sometimes to accuse God of being absent when we find ourselves in those dark valleys, when we're riding out those storms of life, in times of suffering and sorrow, disaster or tragedy. But God isn't absent from us in these situations. God is with us in the midst of these situations. He is the God who came to walk with us through those valleys, and to protect us and to guide us. He is the God who rides in the boat with us through the storms to hold us and carry us, to bind up our wounds and to redeem us from sin and sickness. So if God is persistently seeking to dwell with His people, as we've read in all these verses from the Old Testament through the New Testament, if in Jesus Christ God emptied Himself and humbled Himself to be one of us and live among us, if by the Holy Spirit, God comes to indwell each of us who trust in Him for eternal life, then doesn't it follow that Emmanuel is the God who longs to have a relationship with you and with me? He knows you. And He longs for you to know Him. That's why I think Emmanuel best sums up what Mary and Joseph beheld in that manger. I mean, I mean this was Mary's boy. She gave birth to him. This was Joseph's. He adopted Jesus. And they were going to raise him and feed him and protect him and teach him. Joseph would love him as his own son. Yet this boy is the creator of the cosmos. 
He is the Almighty God. He's the great I Am who spoke to Moses from the burning bush and parted the Red Sea. And Mary and Joseph had the privilege of calling Him Son. As the lyric of one of my favorite Christmas songs says, the baby in her womb, He was the maker of the moon. He was the author of the faith that could make the mountains move. What do you see? When you look into the manger. What do you see? When you look at that child. Do you see the spotless Lamb of God? Who has come to take away your sins? Do you see Emmanuel? The God who has come to be with you through the good times. And the bad times. There is one name that sums up all of who this Messiah was. Is. And ever will be. It's the name the angel Gabriel commanded Joseph and Mary to give him. And in this name, there's an invitation for us to come to the manger. What do we see when we look in the manger? The invitation is to come and see Jesus, the God who saves us from our sin. Now, this name Jesus is an interesting name. In the Greek, it's Jesus. And it comes from the Hebrew Yeshua. Yeshua is a derivative of the name in the Old Testament we call Joshua. There's a whole book in the Bible named Joshua. That's the same name as Jesus. And it means Yahweh saves or Yahweh, the Lord, is my salvation. Now this was a common name for first century uh, Jews living in Palestine. There would have been lots of moms and dads calling for Jesus to come in for supper. Would have been a common name to hear. Which is why often in the Gospels we see Jesus, son of Joseph, or Jesus of Nazareth, to sort of differentiate him from just any old run-of-the-mill Jesus running around. But even though his name was common, this Jesus' name was also very uncommon. Because guess what? Mary and Joseph didn't go to the big book of Hebrew baby names to find this name, did they? Jesus' name was holy. It was divine. It was given to them by the angel Gabriel himself. And this Jesus would live up to his name. This Jesus would bring God's salvation to his people. He had come to save his people from their sins. Jesus' name truly was his identity. And you know what? Every time Jesus ever heard someone speak his name, he was reminded of not just who he was, but what he had come to do. Jesus even said of Himself, I have come to seek and to save that which is lost. I don't don't think we really grasp that sometimes. How Jesus came to save us from ourselves, from our sin, from the very very worst version of ourselves. He, He came to save us from eternal punishment in hell. He came to save us from death itself. But Jesus doesn't just save us from things. He came to save us for something as well. So that we could fulfill the purpose of God by which we were created. To be the image bearers of God. To shine with His presence and His power and His love in this world. He saved us so that we could bring glory to our Father who is in heaven. Though Jesus' name isn't found in John 3.16, I think that verse best sums up who Jesus is. And what He came to do. Say it with me. It will be on the screen in case you need some help. Let's say this together. For God so loved the world, He gave His one and only Son, that whosoever believes in Him will not perish, but have eternal life. 
That's who Jesus is. Another great verse that sums up who Jesus is is Acts 4.12. Salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. As we sang earlier, what a beautiful, wonderful, powerful name it is. The name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. So as we continue to celebrate Christmas, I want to invite you to the manger. I want to invite you to peek in over the sides of that makeshift crib and behold the Christ. He is God's anointed prophet, priest, and king who came as the perfect, sinless sacrifice to pay for our sins, to make us right with God. He is the God who has paid the highest price to be with us and dwell among us. He is the one who has come to save us from our sin and give us eternal life. I want to invite you this morning to respond as the shepherds did. The shepherds did two things in this story. First, they came to see Jesus. They gave Him their worship. I invite you this morning to come to Jesus, to give Him your life, to surrender to Him your all, to give Him your heart and your worship forever. You may be here today and you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Maybe you've even gone to church your whole life. You've heard this story countless times, but you've never done anything with it. You've never turned from your sin and put your trust in the Savior who died to give you forgiveness and eternal life. If you've never done that here in just a moment as we sing, I invite you to come. Come and give your life to Jesus. Maybe you've done that, but you've never made it public. You've never followed Him in believer's baptism. Again, I invite you to come this morning in that step of obedience and faith to say, I know the Lord. I know that if I were to die today, I would go to heaven, but I've never, I've never professed that to anyone. I've never been baptized. And I want to follow Jesus in those waters. I invite you to do that this morning as well. Maybe God is calling you and your family to unite with this church. Come to Jesus. There's a second thing the shepherds did. They came and they saw Jesus, but then they went and they told others what they had seen and heard. And that's an invitation for us as well. Maybe not to come down here, but to go out there. To go and tell someone else about Jesus. What He has done in your life. What have you seen? What have you heard? You know, I, I, what if we got as excited about talking to other people about what we read in our Bible that morning, about, about what God is revealing to us in our walk with Him, about what we experienced at church? What if we were as excited to go out and talk to others about that as we are to talk about the latest Star Wars movie? Or football game? Or hunting trip? Or shopping trip? What if we were that excited? Let me tell you what happened at church Sunday. And would you come with me next week? What a difference would that make? I hope that in 2020, you'll make that a a goal to set and to work on. There's no reason this sanctuary shouldn't be full every Sunday. As full as it was for Christmas Eve. It falls on us to tell the good news, to ask people to come. What is God saying to you this morning? I invite you to come in response. Would you stand with me and pray? Father God, God of mercy, God of grace, God of holiness and righteousness and justice, we deserve 
your judgment, but you gave us Jesus. You sent your Son to die on a cross, to bear the shame of guilt and sin upon Himself that we might become the righteous sons and daughters of God. If there's anyone in this place today that has any doubt in their mind that they've experienced that rebirth in Christ, I pray they would come this morning and know as they leave this place and know as they go into 2020 that they belong to you and that you live with them. Father, whatever you're speaking to hearts and minds today, and I pray that your word will not return void but accomplish all you've sent it forth to do, I pray people would be obedient. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.